Have you heard enough about Portland protests? Think you know what's going on downtown nearly every night for seven months? Good afternoon, I'm Veronica Bezesti, and this is Culture Hub PDX on Portland Radio Project. According to a new documentary by the nonprofit concert venue The Old Church, the flashbang headlines that often make Portland the focus of national news, they don't tell you the whole story, not even half. The documentary, streaming tomorrow and Tuesday, delves into one of the longest street demonstrations in U.S. history and teases out the threads of who's involved and why. It's called Tipping Point. What the Portland protests tell us about the state of America, told through the individual stories of Portlanders on the ground. With us is Julianne Johnson-Weiss, board member here at PRP, who also serves on the board of the Old Church. Welcome back, Julianne. Hello. Thank you. Glad to be back. Fantastic. And uh, joining me as co-host today, Rebecca Webb, Executive Director of PRP. Welcome, Rebecca. Glad to be here. So first of all, Julianne, congratulations on this amazing endeavor. Thank you very much. Tell us, does the story in Portland serve as a mirror for all of America? I think it serves as an extension of sound bites that they've seen through the news. And does it reflect America? I think at different degrees, varying degrees, but I think it is a document that will share with you the climate, the participants, some of the purpose behind their wanting to be involved, and some of the things that you just don't see outside the frame of a soundbite that's on the news. I mean, you actually get to see a swath of uh, what was happening, you know, in the surrounding areas and how people were involved and, and who did what at certain times, you know. And how did you get involved, Julianne? Why do we need a documentary about these events? I started this journey because I am a 50-plus-year-old resident of Portland, born and raised here. And the frustration that I was feeling personally, trying to gather information, because I was not a part of going downtown, being a part of that movement since it was being spearheaded by millennials, and I really thought it was their movement. You know, uh, it's for, it benefits all of us, but the focal point should have been them making their statements and doing what they needed to do. And I just didn't think that it would be really good for those of us who have marched before, have been a part of things before, to come and kind of usurp what was happening on the ground with all of them. They worked very hard and they have mobilized and this is their moment. You know, and I think the way we can help is to give context, uh, since we have gone through a lot of historic moments. I mean, I was in grade school when all the assassinations happened, and uh, Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy, and you know, um, the move, the Black Power movement. I actually met Stokely Carmichael and uh, some of the Panthers. You know, just through the activism of one of our teachers who wanted us to have a chance to meet them. My mother was the millennial of the of the 60s really because she she you know was very very active and involved and my grandparents were the ones that were highly involved in the first rights um, for blacks 
So this is just the next evolution. And this is something I had to figure out what I was going to do in order to be relevant, in order to help and not hinder the cause. And um, this is what I could do. And so the old church called because I've been involved in their space for almost 30 years. And they, they asked me, they said, watching my concerts, I always tend to go back to uh, at the end of a concert and speak to the crowd, giving them just a, a kernel of what they can take with them that will help enhance and be maybe better their day or their week or until we meet again. So they asked me, the old church asked me, would you, would you host and would you be the interviewer? and uh, really talk to these individuals that come from different perspectives that are part of the movement. And I said I would be more than happy to. And here we are fast forward <laughs> in into winter, and we started this at the end of spring. So yeah, it's it's been a, a, a lovely thing, and that's the reason I came on board, because there was a trust and a relationship that was already established. So I felt good about being a part. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about who the interview subjects are in the documentary? Well, what I can do is I can tell you that they are definitely active within the movement. We have the young woman who came on board who helped organize along with another young man, uh, helped organize the walk across the bridge. We have the survivor of the Max murders that happened. We have this young man, he's coming and being a part. He spoke very eloquently, and he's been a part of the movement for a while. So very dynamic people. A rapper who uh, came here, who is also very, very wise and very clear in how he had interactions with uh, with the police as a young man at seven years old, and it impacted his life so much that as we were doing the interview, he began to choke up, just, just recounting the incidents of abuse and things that happened with the police. So I hesitate to give you like a list of people, because what I want you to do is watch the film. And I want you to have a first interaction with them rather than researching them and then listening to them. I think that is really important because I think what you want to do is look at them as human beings that came to the, to the project. And then if you want to research them, that's a good, a good thing to do. But we have people like Mike Crenshaw and C3 the Guru and Alicia Atkins. You know, these are all young organizers that have come together. And I, I had about 18 conversations throughout the summer. We were very good about social distancing and making sure we kept to all of the things that we need to do to keep everybody safe. Consequently, I was on Zoom for all of these conversations. And at first, it, I was very hesitant because I thought, oh, you know, I can't, I can't have the one-on-one -on -one interaction with them really uh, I have to kind of uh, nurture certain things out of them. But no, it <laughs> it worked out even better than I imagined because this is very sensitive. Uh, these are very sensitive topics. And people were very open and relaxed. So this was good. Nice. I'm curious if anything that they told you surprised you. Well, I was surprised more at how the information came forth. Um being an African-American woman in Oregon, no. And my family's from the South. So there's not much you can surprise me with. 
as as it pertains to you know uh, activism and being social con- conscious and dealing with racism and um, just overt you know aggression and microaggressions. There's not much you know, and I think we were all speaking from the same perspective, especially those that were of color that were in this conversation. I think what was surprising to me is how many people who were white, who uh, felt they allowed themselves to feel not only appalled by what was happening, but then they engaged and wanted to help and wanted to change the dynamic and change the culture. So that was not, uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say that was surprising. It was surprising to see the depth in which they had delved into the subject matter and really wanted to to figure out a way to make change and was very protective of what was going on around them too, uh, protective of the leaders of the movement that were of color. Just, it was neat to see the community, you know, uh, coming together. Now, is it a kumbaya moment? I think the walk across the bridge was definitely a kumbaya moment. I think that was a chance for you to see all of the diversity that is in this surrounding area that people don't assume actually exists, but they all came out in solidarity, you know, and and headed across the bridge. Now, did people hang their coats on that beautiful image and just go, oh, you know, that's that's where we are. And then when the work of change starts to happen, you know, it's not peaceful all the time. And I think those who were not really grounded in, in wanting to go further with the movement, it might have taken them aback, you know, and, and given them this feeling like, oh my God, it's changed, what's happened? But if we think about it, 300 some odd days of a movement with the bus boycott, we were only at 100 days. And all of the violence and all the things that happen along with changing the course of humanity and how they think and changing systems, all of that is visceral. There's something in you that just, you either are going to like it or you're not going to like it, or you're going to want to do something about it and feel frustrated that you can't, or you're going to do a lot about everything, which means you haven't chosen your battles. I mean, it's just, you're, you've got a lot <laughs> to kind of wade through in order to make change happen. You know, Julianne, I think one of the challenges, too, you're so right about that. It is a lot. And I think one of the biggest challenges is somehow distinguishing the different parties who are involved. Do you feel like Black Lives Matter got sort of blamed for some of the uh, violence that they didn't cause? Oh, yeah, not sort of. Yeah, it's easier to just dump it all onto the onto the movement because what we're asking within Black Lives Matter uh, we're already asking you to do something that is difficult. So, you know, what do we do when we face something difficult? We go back to what we know. And then we like to put everything into these little compartments so that we can deal with it. And so if we see a fire lit, then we say, oh, why is Black Lives Matter lighting fires? And if we see something being thrown, why are they doing that? You know, we they just need to go and talk and forgetting that this, the very systems that we're talking about that need to be changed are also not amenable to having conversations at this point. You know, there's, there's, I'm not, um, 
Hmm, how do I want to put this? I am not saying that violence is the way to go. What I'm saying is this movie and how we're approaching the whole movement is to illuminate as much as we can all the parties that were involved. And then you, based on what you see, hopefully it will dispel some of those rumors that, you know, Black Lives Matter was doing everything. Because once you start watching, our uh, documentarian had a 24-foot, I think, pole that he had his equipment on. So the perspective changes for you rather than just watching streaming, you know, where everything is on the ground, everybody's fighting through and you see a lot of chaos. What happens is we go up above and over and into the crowd and what you see gives you clarity on who's doing what what they're doing, you know, where you might not be able to name the group, but you can see the group that is speaking and protesting. And and then you see these fringe groups that come in and they're doing all kinds of other things that may not have been uh, a part of the movement. And so I'm not saying that you can identify each group, but what I am saying is that you will see that there are factions and there are groups that are really about violence and really about being seen and that's that's what trying to kind of tries to take and uh, uh take the narrative and and change it what we're hoping is that people will see that uh, black lives matter and the bipoc initiatives and perspectives are really good and need to be upheld and people need to go out and and really try to make change personally and professionally the other part is that the old church, um, their history, I think, it, I, I want to say that in, in the Willamette Week, they said that I said I was the first Black woman there. I did not say that, but I said I was one of a few at the old church who performed there early on, in their early days, meaning like 30 years ago. And for them to have already started social justice initiatives you know, and they had already uh, started this program where they asked me to host, which is called the We Can Listen program. And it's where we take social conscious issues and, and social justice issues, and we bring together parties that may be polar opposite, and we let them present. And then after they present, then we come back for the second half and put them in a panel and actually ask them questions where they get to talk to each other. That, that, was the catalyst for me even being involved for them to even think of me as a host. So once they thought of me as, as the host, it was based on the fact that we had a relationship. And so that loops me back to what I think is the purpose of this and what I'm hoping people will understand is that you can't do this work without relationship. You have to, you have to already have trust, or if you haven't built that trust, then you need to start building the trust because uh, it, it is it will change your life to see through a different lens. I, I believe it. I, you know, I noticed We Can Listen and um, the documentary, and I thought, this is kind of a departure for the old church, which was known primarily uh, until some of these initiatives as a concert venue. Um, Am I right? But, let, well, it, it would appear to be so, but let's put it, into perspective. 
When we started doing the different concerts with young activists and people who were out already involved, their music and their concerts brought in that perspective, okay, of what are we going to do to make change? Here, My music is a part of that, and those young artists bring that in their music. You know, the, the, the rappers and the singers and the, the small bands that do kind of folk protest music and, you know, all of that kind of organically evolved because the We Can Listen program started two to three years ago. Having these groups, younger people come in, I mean, with the old church, it just was that, you know, they needed to, they realized they needed to bring in younger perspectives and younger audiences and things like that. That's just for survival. But bringing them in also brings their perspective and also (laughs) brings their crowd and what they care about. And that infuses it into the music. And music has always been a part of a movement. Always. I mean, in some form or fashion. So it, it really was an organic sort of evolution that happened. Now, the old church is still a concert hall. We have to remember that the other entity in the room is COVID. And uh, COVID dictated to us how we were going to do the film, whether or not they could have music in the venue at this point. Was it safe? What we realized is that we could put a sound person and a director in the old church and me on Zoom, and we were still honoring, and all of us in masks, you know, all of them in masks, and cleaning the space out, that we could actually go ahead and do this and be safe. You know, the idea of of bringing in concerts the way they were doing before, that's too many people, it's too close proximity, it's enclosed, you know, so this that's another piece that was kind of dictated to us by conditions, you know, as to how we were going to do this. Um, but I do think that they're, they they definitely are still doing music. We were just talking about some of the things that we're going to do next, where we can can actually keep the old church as a music hall. It will never depart from that. This is a branch of who they are. And uh, they actually already had a relationship with the documentarian, I showed my first documentary there, Grandma Zula's Legacy. I I actually showed it there and did a concert along uh, with it. So that was your grandmother. Yeah, that was my great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just hearken back for a second to something you were alluding to earlier, which is that you have basically been raised amid the black activists of Portland since childhood. And I even read that you were held by Martin Luther King Jr. as a baby. <laughs> Isn't that funny? At, Isn't that- at your church. That's <laughs> fantastic. I'm curious how with that kind of background, how the current present moment, this outpouring of emotion over racial just injustice has impacted your life. Hmm. I guess the question is, is this just a continuation? Or is this something new? Hmm. Well, <laughs> first of all, let me let me let me go back to uh, the piece about Martin Luther King. I was one probably of many that were held that day uh, because the church was packed and he was speaking. It's the only pulpit in Oregon that Martin Luther King ever spoke from. So really, yeah, 
So that was a special day. I don't, I, I don't remember. I wish I could remember it, but I remember all the stories about it. Uh, because I was lit, I was one, I think I was one or one and a half or something like that. But I think that all of us are on a path. And I remember being in grade school and watching my sister being bused out to Lincoln High School from North Northeast, you know, from the Moda Center area. She couldn't go to the schools in her neighborhood because of them rezoning it. So they bused her to West Sylvan and then Lincoln High School. And the riots that they had in Lincoln, my sister was attending the school at the time. And it was just because everybody was thrown into this mix with no context, no training, no relationships, no, you know, they were just all, okay, now we're going to put you all in Southwest Portland. So that river that runs through our city separates the Black community and the white community. You have Vanport that is just painful to most Blacks. My grandparents and my mother and her brother went through Vanport. They lived in Van. So moving into the city, they faced all the housing issues, you know, of not being able to get a house. They faced then the voters' rights. My grandparents decided that, hey, we can't complain about anything unless we do something. So they decided that they would get actively involved in voter registration and having the one of the first, uh, if not the first, Black um, scout troop granddaddy just went around the neighborhood and canvassed and so did my grandmother with a girl straps troop and then we all got in the car this was like a family event we get in the car with voter registration and we go up and down the neighborhoods and we toss we give ballots to them <laughs> and get people to sign up i mean i was doing that at like six i love that you know <laughs> six years old so and then it turned around to and when you're that young, you don't know that this is not what everybody's doing. You just know, <laughs> you just know that it's what we do. And it's really fun because you see a lot of young people. So we're all riding in these cars and we're trying to outdo each other and get the blocks done fastest. And uh, we took care of the Albina area. So we were up and down Mississippi and Shaver and, you know, Gantbun and all that stuff. Just back and forth, just trying to get these things uh, delivered and being chased by dogs. Because, you know, when it was a really difficult time with the police and and with the KKK and folks like that, um, everybody who was Black tended to have a dog, you know, just, just for safety's sake. And they had it in their homes and then and fenced in so you're trying to deliver these ballots <laughs> and somebody would go dog like this and you see all these kids like running back to the car <laughs> just trying to <laughs> but the important thing was we never stopped delivering the ballots that was the importance because black people had been needing the vote for so long and now we had our opportunity yeah, we're going to do what we have to do to make it happen. And there were people who came in and spoke at the churches because at that time, that was the pipeline for African-American community. And so they'd sponsor people to come in and speak to us. So we'd figure out what city officials were 
really on our side and wanting to help our condition, you know? And then there was this solidarity around everybody deciding we're going to do whatever it, ha it takes in order to be heard. So that was the <laughs> environment that I grew up in. And my mom was part of Model Cities. So any it wanted to have a voice on how to restructure the city so that uh, we got rid of some of these zoning issues. And then being the she was the first black nurse at University of Portland uh, School of Nursing. Uh, she was admitted at 16 years old to the college and then when, was one of four nurses that were the first black nurses at Emanuel Hospital. And then my uncle turns around and he's the first black to graduate from the Air Force Academy. And so, you know, this is the culture. There, I had no choice but to want to be involved because it's what I knew. And um, being a performer, I've always had to be on both sides of the fence, meaning the power structure, the money structure, things like that here in Oregon really is white, predominantly white. And yet, being a member of the NAACP, my grandparents being charter members of the Urban League, all of us participating with those predominantly Black organizations that helped keep us safe and helped us to be heard. So I had both sides of the, both sides of the coin where I was participating. Was it difficult? Yeah, because I have to always spend time with my community to help them understand and make sure they know that if I can get the door open, I'm taking somebody with me. But then on the other side, I also have to be able to navigate in circles where I might be the only one. So that doesn't give me the option to be the quote unquote angry black woman. I can't. I have to be authentic. And that, li li listen, I'm not all that, okay? I have my struggles. Sometimes I get tired and I just don't even want to have to struggle through anything. But I, I face things as every black person in America does absolutely every day. Some kind of microaggression, some kind of blatant prejudice, the, you know, uh, belittling or demeaning or minimizing the work that I've done in order to uplift a person who is not of color. All of those things happen in my daily life and in the daily life of Black individuals and people of color. So what it means is that the systems that make it easy for people to act that way need to be changed. And that's, and that's, where, I, that's where I land on the issue. And that's how I got involved. Uh, and that's, that's why I want to do the work. And now that I'm the only one left here who moved here from Texas, all of them have passed away, uh, but their legacy is still strong. And I'm the next generation that has to pave the way and illuminate where we've been for my nieces and nephews who live here. It's imperative that in my second act of my life, I do this. 
because I'm the only one that has the whole story. Well, we do think you're all that, Julianne, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so how do you like that? Thank you so much for being with us, Julianne. Thank you. I really can't wait to see this documentary and very specifically enjoy the clarity that these individual perspectives will bring to the protests and the movement. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. And applaud him and send a shout out to Amanda Stark and Constance and all the people that have worked with us along the way to make this happen. It's it's a labor of love. None of us are thinking of it being anything bigger than just, just what it should be, which is a, a document, a historic document. Really looking forward to it. And we'll put a link on the website so that people will know where they can stream on Monday and Tuesday. That would be so great because our goal, we're trying to hit, you know, get some thousands and thousands of people to see it. So... It would be great. Thank you so much. Tipping Point is live streaming, as Rebecca mentioned. And thank you for uh, jumping in here with me today, Rebecca Webb. My pleasure. <laughs> Tipping Point is live streaming free for 48 hours, Monday and Tuesday, November 16th and 17th. And as Rebecca mentioned, we will make sure to share that link to the stream at PRP.FM. Culture Hub PDX is a production of Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced by Rebecca Webb and edited by Gordon Graham. I'm your host, Veronica Bazesti. See you next time on Culture Hub PDX. Culture Hub PDX.